0: Hello, you're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, here as always with David Scott.
1: Pleasure to be back, Paul. How are you? Well, thank you.
0: And our guest this week, I'm really excited. It's Justin Smirk, Senior Economist at Westpac. Uh, Justin is one of the best inflation forecasters in the country, and he's someone we've wanted to get on the show for a long while. So welcome to the show, Justin Smirk. Well, thank you very much for having me, Paul. And you're way too kind. (laughs) Um, Look, um, absolutely, with with you here, we're going to talk trends Mm -hmm. in the labour force. Um, there's some big uh, questions uh, around that. um, And that should lead us on to uh, wages and the whole inflation picture. Uh, We might take a look at the global picture as well, because uh, there's been a lot happening uh, there, uh, particularly in emerging market currencies. Uh, But let's go straight into um, the labor force right now. Mm -hmm. Tremendous headline jobs growth um, over the last year. Mm -hmm. um, But when you get in under it, it's not the kind of jobs growth that's leading to um, you know, overall acceleration of wages growth, and indeed to a decrease in the unemployment employment rate, rate. Yeah. Uh, which is, I guess, you know, if you're looking for one number mm-hmm. to look at um, in all of the employment data, maybe take that.
2: What do you think is going on? Um, so I'll just, uh, on the question about the unemployment rate, you're quite right, because even Guy de Bell has um, come out and said to the Assistant Governor of the RBA that there's one number he looks at, is the unemployment rate. So yes, having a look at that is actually a good way to think about it. So why hasn't it gone down as much as you would expect? It's really interesting when you dive into it, there's two factors at play. Um, One is um, the nature of the jobs we're creating, um, predominantly around hospitality and services, particularly around the the very female rich employment. We're finding that the female participation or the female labour force is very dynamic. As we've seen this rising demand for female employment, participation has been rising as well. Some of it's structural, some of it's to do with women being more attached to the labour force, being in the workforce longer, coming back from having children. There's a whole new dynamic there that's underlying that. But even with that, you're still seeing this new dynamicism. As there's jobs coming online, women are entering the workforce. As As the jobs come offline, they're leaving the workforce. The bit that's missing is the male employment. So we've seen through, even through last year, where we had strong growth in employment, male employment lagged behind the rise in the male labour force. And in this nature we're seeing with the slowdown we've seen over the last two or three months, what we're seeing is male participation is not falling as dynamic as female is. So we've got this sort of nexus happening where the females are ebbing and flowing with the demand. That's keeping a very neutral wage bargaining. But in those big sort of high-wage bargaining jobs, the male jobs, particularly in sort of construction, um, in... Um, the, the white collars in the production sort of levels, the manufacturing. Where, where there's a lot of structured bargaining approaches to, That's right. to wages. Yeah. In those sectors, there is an oversupply of males. And that is leading to a downward pressure on wages too. So looking at the unemployment rate, you get a misinterpretation. You can say, yes, it's been flat for the last 12 months. It's around a little bit above 5%, but it's better than it has been. What it's not capturing is the fact that there's this ebbs and flows that are creating, rising male unemployment and that alone, if you sort of step back from the global phenomena and other issues we can talk about, is one reason why wage bargaining can remain low. Um,
0: so what are the differences between, do you think, in, in terms of the, like what causes, say, men who re-enter the workforce and, and say that they're looking for a job, yeah. so they become listed as unemployed – but then y- you say that when the, when the, when the growth uh, is there uh, in those more female-oriented jobs, um, they
2: come and go from the workforce. Right. What do you think is different about men? Um, I guess it's partly cultural and partly traditional. Males are, seem to be the breadwinners, the ones that have... You know, and this is traditional. I'm not talking about what is the way the world operates now, but the, the idea that men go out and have full-time jobs, set the base, um, women... Um, I guess it's a bit to do with how they reacted to the environment as well. Um, Because they haven't had access to those kind of jobs, women have intuitively developed a much more flexible arrangement with the labour force. So when there's jobs there, they they take them. And when there's no jobs around, they just sort of pull themselves back again. So there is a very strong-run structural story of where male employment is seen as being much more long-term, full-time, you know, the core breadwinners. And females aren't. Now, that is changing. That's changing quite rapidly. And you're seeing more women operating in other sectors. You're seeing white-collar female employment grow. You're seeing it grow in other sectors as well. But uh, uh, at this point in time in the nexus, we haven't seen a complete switch. Yeah, and
0: from memory, I think Australia has a spectacularly high rate of white-collar uh, of growth in uh, mm-hmm. women in white collar uh, jobs, which is great to see because it's yes. you know rebalancing that mix in that in those places where um, you you absolutely want to see it uh, happening. In, in
2: and a I think way. I think there's an important point here too that people miss. It's, it's not saying that you know what we're seeing is women squeezing men out of jobs. It's it's not that's not really the argument. What the argument should be is what's wrong. What are we doing wrong? Why aren't we creating enough jobs for men? or why aren't men flexible enough or have the abilities to go into different types of jobs as well? So the labour market is opening up... Which is possibly a training question. Training question. Um, I think it's in some ways a bit of a social question too. Um, How do you make certain types of jobs more appealing for men? Um, You're seeing... The classic example is nursing. You're seeing more men enter into nursing now, but it's still pretty much a female-dominated role. Right. Um, No reason why it has to be. So
0: so let's talk about the different industries there. So... um, So getting into this, we know we've had very high uh, job creation in the health sector, Um, but what other, uh, where is the job creation slow, what sectors is it slow that's leading to this result where you get this uh,
2: underemployment for for men? So first of all, I mean, I'll I'll just make a quick observation too, that this is not equal across all states either. So states are behaving differently in this environment. So that's something we can come back to in a little little bit But in this environment now we're seeing... So um, So you, wrote, you mentioned health. Um, actually, education is also the other big one as well. It's providing jobs. Um, it is much more to around the leisure and hospitality. So the ones that are losing jobs, and particularly in New South Wales, is manufacturing, um, production-based jobs, so in agriculture, mining. Um, mining's made a bit of a recovery, but in a structural sense it's still in a, in a negative one, what it's compared to of late. Um, and what we're seeing now... Um, New South Wales stands out with a big construction surge in employment, but the rest of the states aren't doing that. And the surge in construction employment in this state, you can see pretty much is a cyclical event. We're going through a big reconstruction phase and no one expects that growth rate to continue, to continue to keep on adding on new projects each year at the same rate. So you can see that the areas that are... the Part of the problem is that men traditionally have um, those sort of regimented manufacturing... Um, sort of manual skills-based jobs, and they're the ones that aren't growing at the same pace. Uh, and also probably in the long term as well, or in the medium term, more
0: susceptible to to uh, some kind of automation or, or uh, efficiencies where companies might be reluctant to keep adding to that workforce because down the
2: track. And we're, so, so when there. you're saying talking about automation and efficiencies, that's coming into the white collar too. So there's a lot more processes that are going sort of through artificial intelligence. Um, you, know, you have seen much more sort of accountancy, legal, um, finance, all those kind of roles that which are very um, process-orientated, being automated. And again, there were sectors that were traditionally very quite rich in male employment, more mixed now, but you still get that same result. So it's really important to argue, when you see talk about automation, you're not just talking about it in production-based areas, but also now in skills. So the skills that are starting to stand out, and this is probably where men are being left behind and we have to think about it, is the human relationship skills, the, con- the, the skills on how you deal with people. And a lawyer friend of mine has put it best. He said, in some ways, lawyers are going back to what they used to be. Lawyers now make a lot of money filling out forms and doing processes and doing law, whereas now the lawyers who make really good money are the ones who are trusted advisors. People go to them for advice.
0: Uh, I was at a panel event yesterday with um, Dominic Price, who's the head of people at Atlassian um, Giant multi-billion dollar Australian software company and one of the things he was saying about this was uh, exactly to that point which is automation is not going to make entire jobs redundant it's going Mm -hmm. to make parts of jobs redundant so um, he talked about augmentation of things that people are good at and then so for me, I think that's the very optimistic. Uh, you know, I think that's the reason to be uh, excited about uh, how robots are going to improve productivity, um, uh, output, um, and uh, people's ability to enjoy their lives. Because let's feel it, like nobody likes sitting
2: there at a desk ticking boxes. And um, oh, we know. should be, we could be careful here. Some people that they. They get satisfaction from doing that. It's a very simple... It's a job they enjoy doing and it's a process. So some people are process oriented people. And I think... You know, with, this, with my apologies to all of the process oriented yeah, people. Yeah, no, and this is, I think this is part of what people are missing is that we are leaving groups of people behind. You know, you, what you talked about is very exciting in the way the world can grow. And that is true. But there are people who are not like that and they're going to be left behind. And that is a question we have to address. How are we going to bring them along? because it does impact on the on the way the labor market behaves it impacts on social issues and it impacts on income issues you know the part of the reason why we're seeing household incomes lagging behind now is people don't have the skills for the jobs that are needed now
0: i think one of the really positive parts of this conversation that's happening in business now is the confronting the need to manage this process that is going to Uh, come and affect a whole bunch of industries Uh, and believe me a lot of people are thinking putting a lot of thought into this so um, you know for big organizations it's not just going to be a case it's certainly for some big organizations that I've heard talking um, about how they how they're going after this problem there or this challenge they say well look we are going to have to change the nature of the, the composition of the workforce but we are going to try and do the very best we can to make sure that the existing workforce is managed through that um,
2: because Cause it, it, it is happening now it's not a question for tomorrow mm.
0: um, okay um, so um, let's just talk about them um, uh, quickly the balance between
2: so there's a so lot before of talk- move on i should oh, just sorry mention that bit that we talked about yeah? if you want to think about current policy settings it does mean this is another fundamental reason why you're not going to see wages rise and so all those forecasts for wages to get back to three and a half percent, to get higher income growth, I would argue we have a structural problem here which is going to prevent that. And you can argue, I would put together a strong argument why just assuming an auto aggressive function where wages return to long run averages is a fallacy. <coughs> the <But it's> Treasury. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: and the esteemed people at uh, Martin Place. Of course. Yeah, of course. Um, but, but
2: to be fair, they, they, they actually question it themselves. Even though they've got it in their forecasts, they can see risks around it. If you read what they're writing, they say, this is what we're assuming, but we do see risks around this. So uh, I, I will give RBA some credit for creating a bit of a, a buffer space for themselves.
0: Yeah, uh, and it's certainly, look, it's been a big uh, question for central banks, policy um, uh, analysts uh, and economists around the world um, for a few years now. I think famously Janet Yellen, uh, not long before she um, left as the Fed chair, made remarks to the effect of... the economic community is starting to confront that maybe we really don't understand some elements of the inflation picture. Um, And uh, I I think it's certainly a fascinating period ahead. Before we move on Mm -hmm. deeper and get deeper into uh, inflation and wages growth, let me just ask you about uh, immigration uh, and its role in um, uh, the unemployment rate, um, the overall um, economic growth picture. Certainly for the workforce, there's a lot of questions about, well, you know, sure, we've had this huge run of job creation, but the unemployment rate hovering around where it is. But you've also mentioned this thing of people coming back into the workforce who are in uh, the domestic economy already and not immigrants. So um, can, maybe you can break that down for us a bit.
2: Yeah, so I've actually been pondering this because you can actually you can actually pull out two states, um, New South Wales and Victoria, make some comparisons between them, and you actually find... It doesn't actually give you a clearer answer. I thought it would. You look at Victoria, the state with the highest levels of immigration and where things are running, um, you know, high levels of immigration, you've got much more growth, construction activity. It's, it's behaving more like a, a, um, an economy driven by immigration. You find wage, and so you've got higher levels of participation, um, which means you've got higher levels of underemployment, and it is creating an, an environment where you can map out more. The wage process looks more like the labour market so labour market there is a little softer, wages are softer. So in Victoria, you can get this picture of saying, OK, well, it is increasing supply of labour. Let's you know, that, that's not, that's not beat around the bush. Levels of immigration are boosting output, growth and employment. So employment's coming with it, but the levels of supply are coming with it, which means balances off relatively higher levels of unemployment, relatively softer wages. So that is true. Flip over to New South Wales and all of a sudden you get a different answer. You get an, you get an economy there where you see... Um, rates of growth run around construction and other activity. You see much level levels of rates of unemployment. You see much lower levels of rates of participation. And wages are still languishing. So on this side, you can say Victoria is behaving as you expect it would. Yes, immigration is driving wages down. Look at New South Wales. They should, if that was true, if that was the only factor doing this, they should have higher wages. They're not. They're slightly higher, but not really mapping against just how tight the labour market is. So... Yes, immigration is having an impact on there. Yes, you can see it. Is it a critical factor? I'd suggest not. I suggest it's one part of the story rather than the main part of the story. With the, 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 the domestic
0: supply with the existing supply, mm-hmm. that, coming on, that coming in and out of... of and, the there's some, and there are
2: other factors going on too in South Wales in, a, in an environment of a tight labour market. That's creating wages down. So, yes, it's to do with the women entering the workforce and leaving. But even then, their unemployment rates are lower. Why aren't wages higher here? Um, competition, insecurities, people's unwilling, willingness not to bargain higher, firms' inabilities to pay higher wages given the tight margins they're facing. There's a whole lot of factors here at play which um, immigration may be one of them, but it's not the sole answer. And so the reason I highlight this is if you... St- the argument that if you reduce immigration, you will get higher wages, you may not. That's what I'm arguing. Like I'm, it, it's part of the story, but New South Wales is telling us something else is happening as well. But, but by reducing
0: immigration, you may have certainly other... You'll have growth impacts. Yeah, growth impacts. Exactly. Exactly. You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. We're here with Justin Smirk, Senior Economist at Westpac. Okay, look, uh, let's um, get, get deeper into this uh, um, th- this wages uh, question. Maybe we'll just go back to where we are with, with RBA and Treasury. We name-checked them uh, earlier, <laughs> Dave. Um, uh, so they are expecting uh, wages to regather strength in the co- coming years. Um, so um, what, what does that picture look like for, for that? And just going back over the last few years of these, these particular forecasts?
1: Well, prior to the GFC, we often had uh, wage growth in excess of 4%, uh, at least in the year uh, the threes. And then uh, obviously, since the years of GFC, we've seen pretty much nothing but one-way traffic, a, a, a slow and, uh, and gradual deceleration in wage pressures. Now, they look like they've bottomed last year. Uh, the recent evidence suggests that the pickup. The other uh, cyclical upswing in wages is probably not going to be that strong. At least what we're seeing at this point. know, uh, I mean, we've got uh, private sector wages are still running uh, under two percent. Public sector's a little bit higher. Um, but it's just interesting to go and see that, uh, despite progress in lowering unemployment and the like, there's still not really been that pickup that we were expecting to see. At least not to the uh, to the level that, uh, that many people are expecting, including RBA and Treasury. Uh, we've seen that over their forecasts for for many years and expecting the uh, return to uh, to trend, uh, what we saw prior to the GFC, that hasn't happened. And uh, obviously, given the uncertainty and given what we're seeing abroad as well, uh, whether that's actually going to happen is, uh, is, is debatable at this point. So it brings uh, us, Justin, to I think one of my favourite
0: terms in economics, which is the non-accelerating mm-hmm. inflation rate of un- 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 unemployment, the NIRU, um, which for a long time, has been assumed to be just maybe 5% or a little bit lower. Um, because And the, with the RBA, basically, the logic goes, if you can uh, get job creation to a point where you reduce the unemployment rate to this level, you will see a uh, uh, an acceleration in inflation. Um, how do you think about that? Well,
2: first of all, you have to think about what the NARO concept is. It means you're hitting a level where... There's a level of rigidity or stickiness or inefficiencies in the labour market, which means you can't get what can't it pushes wages up. Now, five percent is based on an economy from historical facts, like running in the last twenty years. Has the way the labour market behaved changed in the last twenty years? Has the structure of the labour market changed? Has the bargaining process has changed? Has information technology and the ability to share on changed? Yes. So I would argue that to use a historical construct of a level at this point in the cycle. Is incorrect, and another thing you can sort of look at is the fact that if it was around five percent, and the RBA does argue this point in some of their statements, they've they've actually talked about that you know you never really know where the Naira is until you hit it, and you hit it when wages are accelerating, and wages aren't. And to to Dave's point just earlier, um, if it hadn't been for the larger than usual wage rises in for the minimum wage case last year, I would argue wages would be even lower this year, the wage rates so would be below two percent. So we're not near the Naira. It was the recent bottoming we've seen in wage inflation is driven by a, a policy decision, not the markets. So I would argue um, with the Naira at this point in is not really a useful concept. We've seen tightening of the labour markets um, with the unemployment rate falling faster over the last year or so, and that sort of created a little bit of pressure. But if you think the labour market's more dynamic, if you think that means the unemployment rate's going to float around these current levels... Um, The Nairo is not really helping us as that that construct. And if you really believe it, and I have some question marks about the Nairo as a concept, without a doubt it should be lower, given the the way our economy's changed over the last 20 years. And to just purely say, based on previous 20 years history, it's somewhere around five, I think is... um, it's quite misleading.
0: Because uh, certainly in the US the experience has been... Very different. It's, yeah. yeah, it's been something like... Whereas previously the Naira mm-hmm. was around five-ish, mm-hmm. uh, it's looking more like four. Yeah. Um, where, where, you know, they're finally starting to see um, some wages grow there.
1: And you, you, you can say the same as well, because it's not just the United States, it's the UK. Uh, you've got uh, places like New Zealand. Uh, its it's uh, unemployment rate is currently below its narrow estimate. Uh, and there's certainly no sign of wage pickup there either. So this is a phenomenon we're seeing across a whole lot of advanced economies, not just in the United States.
0: So there's been a whole bunch of theories about mm. why we're in this situation, because... You know, you we would expect wages growth would help to lead to headline inflation yeah. uh, rising too. Um, so, what do you think uh, is pro- what's your theory on the missing elements of inflation? Some people talk about weak bargaining power for mm-hmm. for, for workers, uh, which was an argument that the RBA governor mm-hmm. raised. Um, there's also the deflationary um, uh, power of um, the technology uh, which just makes things cheaper yep. uh, in a whole bunch of categories um, but what do you think
2: um, I think we always have to take these things very holistically um, everyone's always looking for a simple answer and and Dave's pointing out what's going on in New Zealand there's different different responses in different countries at the margin um, different states in Australia have different responses too. As I was pointing out between New South Wales and Victoria and of course WA and Queensland are different again but the one thing that's sort of overpowering um, all of it is, as you pointed out, um, t- the technology changes but also um, this, this global disinflationary pulse is, is not going away. Um, the desire for firms to continue to operate and generate um, growth in profit or revenue um, hasn't gone away in an environment where we're in a lower, slower inflationary environment. The willingness of firms to put a bargain on wages is, is, is not there, to accept the fact that we can bargain higher wages and pass it on through higher prices. And the employees, them, their own, in low they, everyone's got this lower inflationary mindset, so inflationary expectations are lower. And I would even argue to some degree we've seen, um, even though everyone talks about this gig economy and everything, um, we've got a lower risk appetite in the market, in, in the actual amongst the labour market. People aren't willing to push for wage bargaining. They're insecure. Do you
1: think that may have something to do with debt levels, household debt levels, and people nervous not to go and push the envelope too far just in case it's something you know, they, they may backfire? Do you reckon that could be a
2: part um, of the, the debt? De- de- debt levels are. I mean, the, also the fact that debt levels aren't growing anymore is also slowing the economy down as well. I mean, we were using leverage before. Um, we've reached the new level where people are nervous. Um, but the nervousness, I think, extends... Across the spectrum. So, the, at the lower end of the economy, at the people, they're more insecure in their jobs, they're nervous. Those who are secure in their jobs, as you just highlighted, have high levels of debt. So, there's a higher level of insecurity across the spectrum rather than just being isolated in little spectrums. And that, I think that really matters. I think it's changed people's behaviour and it changes bargaining power and it changes the nature of the outcomes we get. Uh, as a really good illustrative example of uh, this, you know, the
0: persistent. Uh, disinflationary forces that are um, at
1: work at the moment. Um, You're not going to talk about your chicken story, are you? No, I'm not talking about my chicken story. <laughs> oh, well, uh, what's the chicken story? It's no, no, no. <laughs> it's
0: uh, the the chicken story is the um, waiting for the lady to come come around at four o'clock on Sunday afternoon to mark down the chickens in the oh, uh, right, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, deferring purchasing uh, behavior, all that kind of stuff. Um, no, but uh, this is um, baby bunting. So listed. Um, uh, Store for kids, right? And they um, had to um, revise down their profit guidance um, because uh, uh, their couple of their competitors uh, went out of business and they had fire sales. Oh, yeah. So, so you get this cycle where you get troubled retailers go, okay, well, troubled retailers or struggling retailers discount mm-hmm. um, uh, their their product. Yeah. And then the competitors suffer because it drags business away from them. Right. So it, you know, they get this center of gravity that sort of you know, pulls everybody back towards lower prices, lower margin. And if you've got higher costs, baked in yeah. um, you know you're going to be in more trouble um, but the really interesting thing then so that was baby bunting was a couple of weeks ago and then this week Toys R Us yeah. um, uh, went into administration uh, uh, so um, you know 700 staff um, I think 44 stores uh, nationwide but they they're gone basically and a lot of that is um, they're, well they're tr- going to try and save the business or see if they can find a buyer Personally, um, I haven't spoken to anybody who's interested, certainly, but I can't see that anybody would be super enthusiastic about buying that kind of business, especially when you've got the likes of Kmart mm-hmm. and Target selling super cheap uh, discounted toys to help you know attract parents, et cetera uh, into the store and then they go and buy um, all sorts of other things. Uh, yeah, and I think it's a really, really clear example of these pressures that are just kind of everywhere, but they're also in you know financial services, uh, all sorts of professional services because if you can produce a relatively similar product at a slightly cheaper rate, you can undercut your this is and this is why price becomes so important. Uh, and leads to all of this uncertainty in in all kinds of industries. So that's, that's retail. Um, but um, where else are we seeing these the, the you know the, in, the lack of inflationary pressure um, that's particularly significant
2: to you? Um, it's a good question because it, there are some areas in the economy where you are definitely seeing inflation, which normally would produce you know an upswing. Um, you know, housing costs are still relatively um, high, even though they they're coming back a bit but they haven't been passed through, because normally that's because of wage response you get through that. Um, energy costs c- have been rising quite strongly, both in previously it was around electricity prices and also then through um, oil prices and transport prices of late. But you don't hear, and you do hear some squeezing around the, sort of the distribution costs being picked up, but when it gets to the final retail level, it doesn't get passed on again. So we're not seeing that sort of broad willingness across a broad case of spectrums of, for wage rises for for broader inflationary pressures, you are getting stable um, rates of inflation around um, a lot of household services. Um, but even then, it's really interesting, health costs have not inflating as fast as they were, partly due to do the way the government's changed the PBS structure. Um, you're seeing costs in sort of government administration fees slow from what they had been doing. So there's been this whole shift in this pressures, and it's it's not one area that I can sort of put my finger on. You can put fingers on areas where you've seen prices moving up because of you know, housing or energy costs or things like that, but then transferring it through down the process, you're not getting it. And that's what I find is really interesting, the fact that the whole process seems to be geared around a low level of inflation, and no one's willing to put their foot across the mark. It's, it's certainly very interesting. So this leads us on to the the, the rates
0: outlook then, because obviously the, the RBA would like to see some signs of inflationary mm. pressure before it does anything. Um, uh, so um, I know, I think, you, is your forecast for unemployment at the end of this year but
2: still around 5.5? It's around 5.5, 5.5, five, 5.6, yeah, somewhere around this mark. Okay, yeah. and then... Um, uh RBA, what's what's the picture? To you? So we've been had them on hold for a very long time. Um, we had we went back in 2017 and said they'd be on hold for at least two years and then pushed it out to 20, 2019. Um, so we got them on hold this year, next year, and we're questioning what we're going to do for 2019, 2020. It's getting increasingly hard uh, to argue for rate hikes, um, even out in the further horizon. And that is based around unless you're finding some new growth in Australia, Um, unless you're finding a shift in inflationary expectations, unless you think global growth is going to be a new um, sort of um, pulse of growth for our economy, like China's going to grow back to growing at like 9%, 10% or something. It's really hard for us to argue that where we can find it. And in an environment where clearly we're going through a housing cycle that is moderating on the East Coast, um, and we'd argue through a modest correction, to argue for these rate, rate hikes coming here in the near term, um, we've, we struggle to find it. Could,
0: maybe I can ask you both. So the Australian dollar is being easing
2: off mm-hmm. largely because of the
0: strength in the US dollar. Um, so we're 75, 76 cents at the moment. Um, might, is there a potential for that to import a little bit of inflation as imports get become more expensive? Um, and might that be the, the the force that that changes the outlook here, Dave?
1: Marginally. But Aussie hasn't fallen too far. It's fallen against the US dollar. It hasn't fallen that far against the crosses. So in a trade-weighted index sense, it's uh, it's only a smidgen lower. Um, you could argue that obviously fuel prices uh, have risen quite sharply and that will go in port inflation and that will go and transfer through to headline CPI. But uh, what that does to the ability for households to go and spend in discretionary areas and maybe help boost price pressures in other parts of the economy uh, is questionable. So at the moment, I think the Aussie would have to fall significantly further from where it is right now for it to go and uh, lead any inflation. Then even then, you're seeing in the UK after the Brexit vote and the pound got smoked – uh, you saw a transfer three come in uh, inflation and even a bit in core inflation but even now that's starting to go and ease back so it's only a temporary thing it's not a you know, something you can go and, and, and like put the uh, put the bank on and say like yeah we're going to uh, we're going to go and see faster inflation from below aussie because it's not necessarily the case i um would
2: love to start a debate with you and disagree with you but unfortunately no um <laughs> Even, Damn it, I was hoping for something. I know. <laughs> I know but we will see, You do get bits and pieces of inflation coming through with the lower Aussie into certain items, but even last time around we had the sort of bigger depreciation of the Aussie, we didn't get the same kick coming through into consumer good items that you'd expect to see. Yeah, um, right. The pass-through was much smaller. Um, and I would actually argue that around current – we're around long-run averages. You know, this, you're not going to get much pulse. You want to talk about inflationary um, Aussie dollar, you're talking in the mid-60s. Then I'll start talking about in some inflation, mm. and even then, Dave's point very valid. It's about the momentum and trajectory. If it's a one-off shift and then you stays there, or it's a one-off shift down, which is normally what happens the Aussie, and then you get a rebalancing back up again, it's a really short pulse if at all. Well, what about borrowing
0: costs then? Right, so you, this glo- oh, that's different, right? So globally, uh, rates are rising. Yeah. Um, you know, um, corporate debt. Uh, uh, yields uh, rising, spreads are widening. Uh, spreads are widening, and you. Um, so, like, is there a point at which this may turn into higher costs for businesses, and then that gets passed on? Is there? Where do you see that? Or
2: are we still another thing that we're a long way off? No, actually, you, you've hit it now ahead and it's part of our thinking too. Is we are having rate rises here in Australia right now. We are talking about the RBA remaining on hold, and I. And I'm glad you raised this because it's actually a key part of our thinking is that we're trying to get a message out that while the uh, official rates remain on hold, we have to get used to the idea of higher interest rates. And we're seeing it already with the the three-year bond rates. And even though our yields are now below the US yields, they've moved a long way north. Um, BBFW swaps and funding rates have widened out, so the costs of funds for banks have moved out. Um, Banks are now funded in Australia more further along the curve, so they use longer duration, more expensive money, to what's in the past. They use larger amounts of deposits, which are more expensive. I mean, I don't set rates, I'm not involved with rate setting, but you can clearly see the pressure on bank funding is there. And the pressure at some point in time is going to lead to out-of-cycle rate hikes from banks at some point, possibly, if things keep moving the same way. Not saying that's true, but, but you're definitely already seeing, I'm saying it's a very high possibility, um, and you're already seeing it with business rates. Business rates are moving up. Now, also, what you're seeing too, which people don't talk about much, is. So, can I just
0: clarify that's business lending rates? Business it? lending rates.
2: Right. Yep. Other thing too that you're seeing out there in the marketplace, which people aren't talking about too much, is discounts are disappearing. So, banks haven't raised rates, but the discounts they're offering are just starting to disappear, and new, particularly on new loans. So, rates are already moving in this country and they're moving north. And we've seen it also are tightening around not only just the price of money, but the availability of money. You know, credit conditions are tightening. Two things, these are happening in the backdrop. In this environment, you overlay an RBA rate hike, you're getting a very tight cycle, mm. something that is probably not, is really not needed at this point around. So, But I should admit, so we should be very clear. Our view is RBAs, so the official rates remain on hold. But in the backdrop, we are seeing... Tighter credit conditions and rising market rates.
0: So it's certainly a very interesting uh, picture, um, Dave. Um, do, do, do you see this uh, in any way, you know, feeding into um, the overall picture to, to a point where people um, might start to notice it? You know, like whether it's on personal loans, credit cards. Um.
1: Definitely, you now you'll start seeing it, particularly in fixed interest lending, uh, term lending. Uh, so. We've seen this and been some discounting in, in fixed uh, home loan rates recently. After APRA went and removed their other 10% annual cap, which is understandable because uh, investor credit growth is running well below that 10% level. But from a longer-term perspective, you keep seeing rates go up, and all the indications are, including from the Fed minutes last night, that they'll keep hiking this year. Uh, longer-term, uh, no borrowing costs will rise, and uh, that will almost inevitably be passed on to customers. Uh, it's always done in the past and uh, it will be the same in the future. So people will start going and seeing it. Um, whether that leads to an increase in deposit rates for savers, I'm not, not entirely certain, but uh, that's something that maybe they can go and look forward to in the future. I saw and uh, a
0: fund manager emailed me yesterday a, a, a slide from a presentation he was at. He took a photo of it. But uh, he, his, um, uh, the slide was showing that uh, returns from fixed income – are uh, exceeding are exceeding equity returns
1: uh, now is just crossed mm-hmm. so um, are you talking about yield or are you talking about yield yeah, yeah Sorry, definitely yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, in the i think in the u s now i think two year yields is now currently higher than the s and p five hundred uh yield, so that gives you an indication so on the risk spectrum uh the debt is supposed to be safe and equities are not but they 're currently um yielding less so obviously there's still a few people out there who think that the growth is uh, is there for stocks whether that's the case you know, we'll find out
0: yeah um and obviously potentially another incentive for particularly big funds um to start trimming equities and um moving a bit more into into bonds as um if those if those rates continue to creep a little bit higher
1: Potentially, the uh, the tailwinds from QE are now well and truly starting to fade, and we'll soon uh, see QT. If all things go to uh, go to plan, you know, we'll see the ECB is already tapering and expected to go and probably finish their QE by the end of the year, and that will um, certainly create a few uh, few issues. And that will be those riskier assets, uh, you know, further out the spectrum, will be the ones that will be most vulnerable if we do see a spike in rates. And all things being equal, they're obviously you know. QE went and delivered some spectacular returns. Uh, when QT starts taking effect, maybe it'll be the spectacular other kind.
0: The, the other chart that that person, he sent me two charts and literally, I can't believe they're, they're just, I've been trying to pull them up here and I can't find them, but uh, uh, the other chart that he sent to me was um, uh, the... A chart of S and P volatility mapped against the pace of uh, asset purchases by central banks, and they are almost exact, an exact match uh, going back over the last five years. So, as the pace of uh, of QE increased, and volatility uh, mm-hmm. disappeared, and now what we're seeing is as the uh, the um, that all of that those asset purchases start to unwind. Um, Volatility is rising pretty much
1: in line. So it could be uh, an interesting uh, few months ahead. We just had a king tide and now the tide is going out and we'll find out what, uh, what assets are really valued up.
2: And um, you, you mentioned QT, but you should also mention too the, the growing US deficit, which is going to increase the supply of bonds as well too. So you've got easier liquidity plus more supply. So it is going to be a reasonably large tide. Very <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> mildly. Yeah. Um, so let's quickly talk about the Fed. Um,
0: so the rising US dollar, okay, and this is a part of the whole thing, the tide going out, we're finding out who's, uh, who's, who's in trouble. Uh, rising US dollar, some noise around concerns for emerging markets as a result of this. Um, but the Turkish lira getting absolutely mauled um, down 6%, I think, yesterday. Um, uh, the Argentinian peso um, as well. Um, any concerns for you there, uh, uh, Justin, in terms of uh, where things are going for, for some emerging markets countries? Um,
2: well, the, the emerging market countries that are uh, in that environment, you pointed out um, Turkey, which has gone from being perhaps the, the cutting edge of being a reform, open economy, to one that's been more sort of structured and controlled, um, has left it exposed so, yes, it's not surprising the Turkish leader is taking a bit more pressure. And the Argentinian peso, um, we feel like we're back to where we are with all times with Argentina. Um, whenever there's a tightness in liquidity, um, the underlying underperformance of their economy and the structural imbalances they have come to light. So, yes, countries that have um, an imbalance in their um, balance sheets or in their um way their economy is structured um, in an environment which has been hidden by cheap and easy money, in an environment of tightening liquidity, they're, they're all the ones that pop up first. Does it mean we have a broader crisis? Not necessarily at all points in time. Um, it depends on who's borrowed and who's leveraged at that point in time. At this point in time, it all looks structurally sound. But we have to expect to see, if you really believe we're going to see an environment of higher interest rates in the US and um, the degree of um, rising interest rates, then, then we have to expect to see some more of this to appear. Um, Dave, uh, have you been um,
0: impressed uh, by the, sale of the, the scale of the meltdown,
1: uh, particularly in Turkey? Uh oh, it's always hard to go and be impressed after you've uh, traded through the GSC and the like. But um, look, at, uh, it is just a reminder that... Uh, that those uh, those days of uh, gideon gains and you uh, know everything being priced to perfection and and uh, no risk being attached to uh, to things that should really have had risk attached is uh, is over um, and it's just a gentle reminder that people should perhaps look to go and uh, lighten up on some of their uh, their riskier positions because this is going to become more and more frequent. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to go and be a, a cataclysmic collapse like a GFC type scenario, but. Uh, you know, you've got to expect that, you know, places like Australia, we have close ties to a lot of emerging markets, so if they run into trouble, then inevitably we will run into trouble as well. So just things to go and keep in mind, but it's not to say that it's the end of the world.
0: Um, one uh, important emerging market, if you want to call it that, is China. Um, just a small
1: one. Just, just, a small just a small one, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. Um, it's, I suppose, class of its own. Um, you know, after a phenomenal performance over the last, um, you know, Bit of an economic r- miracle, really, over, over the last three decades. It's now a completely transformed economy. Um, uh, Phil Lowe um, yesterday, uh, we're recording on Thursday, um, on Wednesday night, uh, he gave a, a speech where he talked in detail about the uh, risks um, from uh, risks building it, that he sees in the the financial system. In um, In China, um, debt at something like 250% uh, to to GDP, even though GDP is a whoppingly large number now. Um, And uh, he pointed out, I suppose, that uh, obviously, and I think this is probably something that's pretty clear to uh, most of our regular listeners, that uh, some kind of problem in in the Chinese financial system uh, would be... um, pretty troublesome, um, potentially catastrophic for, for Australia. Um, Justin, um, what are your thoughts on, on all of that debt build-up and how China is managing the transition
2: and trying to reduce it? Um, I, I guess the one thing is we take a fairly um, long-run structural view on the debt issue and, and looking at like you know, where the debt is. So it's mostly around um, corporates, state and enterprises. Um, the household sector and the and the um, government sector in, the, in China have very, very low levels of debt by any sort of measure you look at. Um, and also then sort of thinking about what the dynamics of the Chinese economy, they're a, they're a net saving nation that exports capital. So one of the things that sort of we sort of look at is saying, well, in a large picture sense, you're not looking like a scenario like the US where if you get a massive debt issue it blows out into the global economy because it's all through interlinkages it's more like a japan where you have where it basically it's internalized around their own savings that does not say it's not meaningful Um, it just means it means to us to say that uh, if if there was a major crisis and we don't we're not forecasting one but it would be very much internalized so don't expect a gfc expect something that's very china-based now is that a slow growth story yes are we seeing it already Yes. Is the government, making, the administration making very strong moves to wind down the shadow banking sector and grow the official banking sector? Yes. Is it leading to lower lending rates of growth in China? Yes. They are, this issue is one of the fundamental reasons we're looking for slower growth in China, because the Chinese authorities are clearly, clearly trying to manage it, trying to bring the unofficial lending back in-house. It is creating a slowdown in growth. It means companies that could get credit before it now can no longer can. And we're looking for this to, it's something that's not going to be solved overnight. It's not like saying this time next year everything will be fine. It's a long, slow process. It's going to try and unwind some of the excesses. So it's one of the fundamental reasons we believe Chinese growth now is stepping down. So... It's one of the reasons we got a slower commodity profile and everything, too. Yeah, and I think one of the things, I, I
0: don't think you see this as much as you used to maybe a few years ago, but there's a, so maybe people have moved on in this, this realization that the Chinese economy just is different. It's not, you know, if you hold a lot of debt and, um, you know, a, and a bank is after you for that debt, it's just a different dynamic in yeah. China um, because, you know, Basically, Beijing can pressure state-owned enterprises or semi-state-owned enterprises to be a bit, you know, to forgive a bit of debt or yeah. or, or manage through the repayments
2: or and whatever there, it is for various things. And there's even ability to move some of it off straight onto the government balance sheets, like through refunding arrangements and everything. So that's why it's important to look at the sort of, you know, while debt levels in China are very high, and everyone talks about the level of debt to GDP. You know, the level of savings is really high compared to a lot of countries like the US. They're not, they're not required on excess savings. So there's the ability to do that internally. So, just, right, they can, they can force this restructuring. They can force companies to, you know, forgive debts in certain levels, you know, force companies to buy at other companies that are in trouble. So there's all these things they can do. But we shouldn't also ignore the fact, while we're, while we're acknowledging that it's different, that those kinds of actions will slow growth. You're basically saying to you know, wheel yourself in, you know, bring in those companies that were underperforming. You know, you're not stimulating and throwing money out there at it. You're not trying to get it going again, but you're definitely trying to contain it. So it's a, while it may not be a, a catastrophic crisis, you're definitely in this environment talking about slower Chinese growth. You've
0: been listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest this week on the show has been Justin Smirk, senior economist at Westpac. Justin, fascinating chat. Thank you so much for coming on the thank show. Thank you
2: very much, Paul. And thank you, Dave. Yeah,
0: it's been too long since uh, since we initially talked about getting you on, but uh, mm-hmm. we finally
2: got there. So I'm very pleased.
0: Yeah, no, it's terrific. Um, so we'll have you on again soon. I've uh, been here as always with David Scott. Been a pleasure, Paul. The show is produced by Rick Salter. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on iTunes under Devils and Details or your favorite podcasting platform. Uh, we're on Twitter at BIAUS. You can find us all on Twitter individually. Myself, Paul Colgan, David Scott, and Justin Smirk from Westpac. We'll catch you next time.